Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Now today, my guest is Kevin Levin. Kevin is a public historian who specializes in the history of the Civil War. He has special interests in historical memory. He holds positions with the National Humanities Center and with the National Council for History Education. He's also a frequent contributor to publications like The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, The New York Times, and The Smithsonian. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, it's good to talk to you, and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So let's get to it. You you recently wrote an essay for The Atlantic um, just a few weeks ago, uh, and the title is Why I Changed My Mind About Confederate Monuments. It seems like a good place to begin, given the uh, the, the nature of the Why We Argue podcast. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this piece that you wrote? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that piece came out shortly after, a couple days after, uh, the violent rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, involving uh, a number of white nationalists who marched through the University of Virginia on a Friday evening and the next day rallied around the Robert E. Lee Monument uh, in what is now called Emancipation Park. Uh, Charles, I lived in Charlottesville for over 10 years, taught there, um, you know, used those monuments throughout my teaching career uh, to sort of, you know, to sort of talk to my students about not just the history of the Civil War, uh, but also the time period in which many of these monuments, including uh, the Robert E. Lee and the Stonewall Jackson Monument, which is a few blocks away, were erected and dedicated. And we're talking about, uh, in reference to most Confederate monuments, we're talking about the period roughly between 1890 and 1940. So we're talking about the height of the Jim Crow era, uh, a period of, of segregation, racial segregation. And the monuments, you know, for most historians who study this, the monuments reflect a kind of a white supremacist view of the Civil War. It certainly doesn't take into consideration how African Americans who lived in these communities uh, would have remembered or would have commemorated uh, the Civil War era. And so I guess for most of my career, my approach to monuments had always been as an educator and as a historian. So I, I guess you could say I approached them as relics that needed to be interpreted to help us understand some of the more difficult uh, moments in American history, namely the Jim Crow era. Uh, and so if you would have asked me, say, 10 years ago, you know, what is your position on these monuments? I probably would have resisted flat out uh, removing them uh, because I think they play such an important role uh, for communities, the communities in which they are uh, a presence. But I think in the last few years, and I, I guess I would point to the, the shootings uh, in Charleston in, in the summer of 2015, uh, that proved to be sort of a decisive moment for me, as well as a visit to uh, to Prague in Czechoslovakia that, that same summer. Um, I started listening a lot more to people on the ground uh, in some of these communities, people who, who lived with these monuments on a day-to-day basis. And I opened my ears a bit more to sort of, you know, sort of the emotional or psychological aspect of, of what it means to 
to live, you know, close by, having to look up at a Robert E. Lee monument uh, or a Jefferson Davis uh, statue and, and trying to understand uh, where they're coming from. And I think sort of in the, in, the, in the last few years, sort of opening myself up a bit more to, again, that other aspect of, of the life of these monuments, the impact they have on real people's daily lives, uh, that that's certainly shaped how I see monuments. Uh, I, I, I'm at the point now where I, I think it's safe to say I'm much more comfortable uh, with the removal of some of these monuments. Uh, that is not to say that I won't continue uh, to use these, uh, to use monuments and statues as a teaching tool, uh, but I'm much more, I think, tuned into uh, why some people, specifically African Americans, are so troubled by their presence. And I think those are the voices uh, that deserve to be heard uh, more than the kinds of concerns expressed by my fellow public historians, um, more on the lines of preservation and education. Sure. So can you speak a little bit to um, uh, what is often um, uh, the pushback from the other side? Uh, and we even heard um, a version of this from our president. Uh, that yeah. the removal of public monuments that uh, are related to um, this uh, dark period of the nation's history, but the removal of yeah. the monument is somehow an attack on historical truth or historical memory, or it's somehow washing away or or removing uh, yeah. some fact about our our collective past. I've never myself under, I, I have to admit, I, again, I'm not a historian, obviously. I've never myself understood that what's being asserted in that line. Did yeah. you have a better sense of, of, of what the concern is there? Yeah, I, I think the, I think the president, whether he, whether he realized it, whether he was conscious of it or not, uh, I think what his comments reflected is what you might call a sort of a heritage attitude toward American history. And, and the civil war or the history of the Confederacy specifically is, is often sort of, you know, reduced by reduced to just another moment in American history where Americans, uh, you know, sort of braved the battlefield to fight for their respective values, uh, as opposed to their northern neighbors who fought for their respective values. But in the end, you know, by the turn of the 20th century, Americans on both sides, north and south, were willing to sort of look beyond the cause for which, um, you know, both sides fought. Uh, and that meant, to a great extent, ignoring the divisive issues of slavery and emancipation from the national memory or national narrative of the war. And I think I think uh, President Trump's remarks sort of reflect this tendency uh, to to equate the Confederacy with with just they were they were they were also Americans. Right. Um, and it dismisses or it minimizes um, I think what more and more Americans are acknowledging in the last few years, and that is that these men uh, fought for a government whose, whose purpose, uh, and they didn't hide this from anyone, they were very explicit about this, was the creation of an independent slaveholding republic based on white supremacy. But because Lee Jackson and these other figures have become kind of iconic American military men, it's, it's, I think, for some people, uh, much more difficult to sort of step back and acknowledge the cause for which they fought. And I think Trump was also speaking to a certain base uh, that 
that that that is eager to rally around these monuments, uh, not because they are interested necessarily in history, but because these monuments are wrapped up in politics itself. And, and that's what makes this so difficult, I think, to, to sort of really sink your teeth into, because so much of the public discourse is not so much about history, it's about, it's about sort of uh, the broader culture, cultural, political, and racial divide. And the monuments become a kind of um, rallying point uh, around which to sort of engage in these discussions. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure. So, just one thing that you said is 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 is, is comes as a as a as a uh, an insight to me that I'm sure uh, I'm just late to the game on this. But I suppose that, um, or would you say it's right to say that the uh, part of what the Confederate monument's purpose was in erecting them was to change the public perception of figures like Lee so that they would become recognized as American, as you say, military men, they're generals. And I'm just thinking of what the monuments look like. <laughs> yeah. And that's how they're, that's how the, 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 the leaders of the Confederacy are portrayed just as, you know, uh, courageous soldiers or right. in, in, men with integrity fighting for what they believe in. That's right. Uh, so that the, the, the sort of mythology uh, around uh, the Civil War that you're you're pointing to, which downplays the actual causes, and you know doesn't re- you know doesn't make reference to the Confederacy as uh, um, you know a, a, a treasonous, traitorous, you know secessionist movement, right. but right. rather presents these people as just upright soldiers. Right. Uh, that it feeds. It's sort of like it. it, it it's a self perpetuating kind of. Um, uh, uh, imagery. Right. Uh, is that, does that sound right? That's right. That served a specific purpose at the turn of the 20th century. It, it, it helped white Southerners deal with uh, the fact of defeat. Uh, it helped them sort of move from uh, the devastation that the Civil War wrought. And at a time, uh, decades later, you know, when the South itself is in, was in transition, where, you know, people are calling for the South to become more industrialized. Uh, at a point when Confederate veterans are beginning to die off and a younger generation that never experienced the war directly, um, it, they become a way to sort of unify this new generation around a memory of the war in order to deal with some of the confusion, un- racial unrest and uncertainty of the future, especially as you get into the 20th century, mm-hmm. you know, close to World War I. Um, these monuments are, are kind of a, a reminder of a, of a a more gallant time, um, and one that can still be embraced, can still bring collective meaning uh, moving into the future. And do you think that um, one might say, given g- given the, the the account you just gave, that um, for that generation of uh, white uh, people living in the South uh, in the, after the Civil War, the monuments uh, as they were erected. Mm-hmm. Um, may have played a kind of therapeutic role. Oh, oh, absolutely. And so, but I guess now p- part of uh, part of the argument um, uh, on the side of the people who uh, uh, would favor their removal, at least the removal of many of them, has to do that the meaning of those monuments can change now that the therapeutic need is not quite <laughs> yeah. what it was. Does that sound right? I think that's right. I think even among, you know, white Southerners, um, you know, certainly as we rem- as we move further and further from the Civil War generation and, you know, as, and of course, 
people are moving into the South. We're, we're moving, you know, all the time. There's there's demographic shifts uh, that play a really crucial role here in the last few decades. Um, that people don't have the same personal attachment to these monuments that their parents or grandparents would have had, and that has a lot to do with how the subject is being taught now more and more in schools, public and private schools around the country, and a host of other factors. Uh, so for white Southerners, uh, you know, certainly you can find a kind of a split that you would not have found over the meaning of the war and the monuments a few decades ago. I think for African Americans, I don't think much has changed uh, in terms of how they view these monuments. Right. I think you can go back to you know, the time in which these were dedicated. Uh, take, for instance, the Robert E. Lee Monument in Richmond, 1890, 120,000 people showed up for its dedication. And the editor of a black newspaper in the city, I'm um, sort of paraphrasing here, he said, uh, you know, the black man was there to help put up this monument. And when the time comes, he will be there to pull it down. Right. So that kind of um, and, and that, that, of course, speaks to the fact that African-Americans simply were not involved in these discussions about how their tax dollars and how their communities would remember uh, these monuments. But I'll add one more point here. I think for the, the diehards, if you will, the, the white Southerners who are really holding tight to these this traditional view of the monuments, that creates a lot of challenges in, in terms of how to engage them in public debate. And I would perhaps go as far as to say it makes it close to impossible because what they're coming at it with is what they take to be a kind of a, a personal, familial uh, you know, connection, ancestral connection to the past, uh, and they are extrapolating from that, to or to generalize about the war from that kind of personal connection. And I can't think of another area of history where people approach it from such a personal uh, perspective and then draw conclusions about the history as a whole. Most people don't have that kind of emotional connection. They're more than willing to sort of place their own, you know, ancestry within a framework provided by historians and others, if that makes sense. No, that makes, that makes good sense and, and provides a nice uh, segue. You know, so part of your work as a public historian, um, and in fact, on, on your webpage, part of what you, you, you describe as that work is outreach and uh, interest in, in helping others, you know, share your passion uh, uh, for, for the, the, the history of the nation. Um, so I, I take it that um, uh, you engage uh, online quite a bit uh, yes. in discussions about not only sort of factual historical materials with respect to the Civil War, but also these broader questions that you were just touching on, you know, the yeah. nature of historical memory, the place of, of uh, th that kind of memory in, our, in forging uh, our sense of identity and our sense of place. Um, can you tell us a little bit a part a little bit about that part of your outreach and some of the challenges uh, that it presents? Yeah, I, you know, I've been blogging for uh, it's going on eleven years now, and I wow. started at a time uh, when few people were were blogging, you know, seriously about about history. Uh, it, it does present a number of challenges because you know when you're when you're blogging about uh, you know something like Civil War memory, not just history, but the memory. Uh, for the reasons I, I just mentioned a few moments ago, that can be a very difficult sell uh, for some people, especially those I just described who really are resistant to what they see as uh, encroachment on on their territory, right? So I'm quite often, uh, you know, I, I, I get the references of you know the liberal academic, uh, the revisionist, 
uh, and much worse. I, I won't share uh, some of that uh, with your guests. And being uh, being from the north, I guess, doesn't that help. That doesn't either. help. Uh, being Jewish doesn't help. Uh, so so there, I have a number of strikes against me right off the bat. But what I found, and I don't mean just in terms of blogging, but also in terms of um, other examples of public outreach, whether it's public talks or, or even the kind of writing that I, uh, that I most enjoy, uh, I find more often than not that, that people are willing to engage, uh, that they are willing to uh, put some of their assumptions uh, you know, on, you know, in check, uh, consider new questions. Uh, that, of course, you know, I approach this as an educator in that regard. I, I see it more as an extension of, of my classroom, even though I'm not uh, teaching specifically right now. Um, and, and so, yeah, and so in, in that sense, it's, um, it, it's a, a very rewarding kind of uh, – you know, way to do history, because, of course, I, I do try to engage in scholarship. Uh, but the work that that means the most to me is uh, is actually working with the public. And, and that's, of course, certainly picked up in the last just a few months, given this uh, this current uh, debate over the monuments. Does so excellent. Does the um, but a lot of other guests uh, on the program in previous episodes who engage in sort of uh, public outreach of the kind that you're describing, mm. um, have reported confronting um, uh, in some of the more adversarial encounters, uh, yeah. let's call them, not only just, you know, the, the, the kind of unpleasantness that you were describing a moment ago, but also um, interlocutors who have a, a, a suspicious set of attitudes about the very nature of expertise. Sure. So, do you confront that? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think it comes out in in sort of the ways I, I described. Um, I just finished uh, you know reading Tom Nichols's new book about to the death of expertise, as he's called it, and I can certainly see some of that um, in the work that I do. Specifically, I think <laughs> of all things, uh, you know, with the the rise of of the internet, uh, that has become, I think, the the biggest challenge because. Uh, it's both a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, um, you know, we have access to an incredible amount of information um, at our fingertips. And yet uh, we're not really teaching, you know, we're not teaching students and we're not even teaching teachers how to intelligently, you know, search the Internet and assess the information that our search engines are providing. And that, I think, is a challenge for the idea of, you know, any any notion of of gatekeepers, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think academic historians specifically have traditionally seen themselves as sort of playing the role of a gatekeeper. Right. Sort of assessing new interpretations that come down the road. Um, And of course, you see that in other fields as well. But with the Internet, uh, the Internet has democratized uh, the study of history. Anyone can be a historian now. Right. You can set up your own website. Um, it's easy to cut and paste information from one website to the next. And I think that that's one example uh, in which this sort of public discourse has become muddied, um, very confusing. Um, myths, of course, are, are very easy to spread on the Internet as a result. Um, so, the, so the notion of gatekeepers, I, I would suggest they, they simply don't exist anymore. Uh, or expertise, how do you define it? in this, in this environment, I think is extremely difficult now. Right, right, right. So you just, um, mentioned something that I think makes a nice occasion for, uh, 
for, for, for discussing another uh, part of your work because in addition to the public uh, history work that you do and the outreach that you do, you are uh, the producer of um, uh, academic uh, scholarship. Um, and so uh, you've, you've, you've published uh, one book already about the Battle of the Crater, uh, okay. and you have a current project uh, that that you're you're hoping to finish very soon as you told me yeah. uh, before we yeah. started the, uh, the, the the recording so I know that yeah. your time is precious but um so your, your current book project is about something that you call the Civil War's most persistent myth um, right. can you tell us a little bit about the myth and what the project is all about yeah absolutely so uh, the book is actually called searching for black Confederate soldiers and and then the subtitle is what you just uh, what you just referenced um, you know, if you were to go to the Internet right now, go to a Google, uh, the, the search page and type in uh, black Confederate or black Confederates, uh, you would uh, I, my guess is you would come away with hundreds, if not thousands of websites. And uh, many of these websites, uh, you'll find images of African-American men in Confederate uniforms. Uh, you might even find uh, personal accounts of these men serving as soldiers in the Confederate Army. Um, it is, uh, you might even find an image of a group of Confederate soldiers uh, standing uh, next to two officers uh, that is often uh, referenced as Louisiana uh, soldiers uh, serving in the Confederacy. And all of this is a myth. It's, um, it's a myth that as far as I can tell, uh, was first, you can find its origins in the late 1970s, uh, in direct opposition to a, a, a sort of a shift in popular memory or, or public memory, if you will, about the Civil War, uh, at a time when more and more Americans are coming to sort of accept that slavery was central to the war, its cause, that emancipation was um, one of its most important results. Uh, this is after decades of, of Americans really not wanting to deal with the cause, as I mm -hmm. mentioned uh, earlier, and at a time when uh, stories of black Union soldiers, roughly 200,000 uh, free and formerly enslaved black men who fought in the United States Army to save the Union and end slavery. And by the 1970s, there is a group called the Sons of Confederate Veterans that is growing more and more concerned about the popularity of this uh, this narrative. And their response is to sort of start, they start talking about their own so-called black Confederate soldiers. And for the first few years, uh, really all they could produce was, you know, magazines and, um, you know, small print books about this. But it was with the advent of the Internet, that this really took off. And uh, by the early 2000s, it had become a, a, a dominant narrative uh, on the Internet, specifically. And it speaks to uh, again, uh, the the fact that we're not teaching, you know, students how to uh, how to properly, you know, access and assess information online. And, you know, it's created all kinds of problems in 2009. A Virginia textbook, a fourth grade textbook for public schools included a reference to thousands of black men fighting under Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley. And it was later learned that the author had simply conducted a, a basic Google search and she had come across the first website and she had basically assumed the information was correct and it ended up in a book for children. Um, oh but it, yeah, but it, but it, you know, so we have books that are being read in our public schools. Uh, you know, it's appeared in Hollywood movies, even the national park service has fallen victim to it. Um, and you know, it, it, it's, 
for my purposes as someone who is who spends so much time online, you know, writing and engaging with people, um, it's it's proven to be uh, probably the best example of the pitfalls of of uh, of doing history, of trying to be a historian in the age of the internet. And so just to be clear, so the the yeah. um, the myth of the black Confederate soldier. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, what you're saying is that this is something that emerges in the 70s as yeah. a way of countering um, the 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 uh, as a way of countering the the, the view that uh, is now uh, widely accepted, maybe in every place except uh, the Internet, that one of the causes of the war right. is slavery and one of its outcomes was emancipation, because right. I take it that the thought is that pro-confederacy uh, uh, contemporaries um, mm-hmm. think that what? If they could show that uh, there were African-American soldiers fighting on the side of the confederacy, that shows that the uh, uh, end of slavery was not what the war was about? Is that the thought? That's right. That's excellent. Uh, that, that the confederacy was uh, was not, in fact, fighting to preserve slavery, and that, in fact, the, con- that the confederacy was just as responsible for ending slavery as the United States. Uh, so it's a way to sort of deal with uh, the the growing, um, the, the, the sort of a more widely accepted view uh, the Confederacy was in fact uh, fighting to preserve slavery, and so uh, it's that's its purpose. Um, and you know, I my book starts with the war itself. Um, no one was confused about the place of African Americans who found themselves in the Confederate Army. They did all kinds of uh, of jobs in the military. Uh, but they were never considered soldiers, and it was only until the very last weeks of the war in 1865 in March uh, that the Confederate government actually authorized their enlistment. But, of course, by then only a few uh, were able to enlist, and the war ended. But even through the early 20th century, it's very clear uh, that these men who attended Confederate veterans reunions, they were written about extensively. Uh, you're hard-pressed to find any references to them at all as soldiers. They were slaves or as they would have called them in many cases, their body servants in, in the army. Um, it's only in the 1970s that this really does kick into high gear. And, uh, and then, of course, even more so, uh, you know, once the Internet becomes, uh, you know, a factor. And on the, I'm um, just, again, pardon my ignorance on this. And on the Internet, if I were to do the search that you're recommending, mm-hmm. um, what are the vehicles of this myth? Certainly it's not simply yeah. narratives. I mean, is, are there... Are there doctor documents? I mean, what exactly, you know, what fuels the mythology here? Yeah, so one of, you know, you mentioned a, a doctor documents. There is one example, uh, and it's, uh, it's an image of, uh, it's a black and white image of, um, of a group of, of black soldiers in uniform. And it's, it it's clearly was taken in a studio. And because the uniforms look gray uh, in the photograph, it is assumed that they were, uh, you know, Confederate soldiers. Uh, it took two researchers from the University of Virginia uh, to go back and connect it to a lithograph from 1864 that was done in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Camp William Penn. And these men, in fact, uh, were Union soldiers, newly recruited black Union soldiers. But in 1973, the image first appeared in a, in a Civil War magazine, and then it was later photoshopped. Not clear who photoshopped it. So that's probably one of the clearest examples of manipulation. Uh, but the damage is done because you can find that image on literally hundreds, if not thousands of websites. But much of the rest of the, the kind of primary source information, newspaper references, personal correspondence, 
uh, and some of what's called the official records of the War of the Rebellion. Um, what you often find on websites are these accounts, but no context. So the people who organize these websites take it as sort of assumed uh, that their preferred conclusion that, that these accounts actually show soldiers as opposed to slaves should be accepted by the, the, the visitor. And it, that, of course, is, is the danger here because, um, what, again, what you have are people who are clearly not able to provide any kind of analytical uh, interpretation to these primary sources. Uh, they're not, again, they're, they're simply not able to do it. And most people are not really looking for it, right? Mm -hmm. um, they believe what, what's presented to them. And because it's been reproduced on so many websites, uh, that itself becomes kind of a confirmation for, for, the, for its veracity, right? Um, sure. <laughs> so, you know, you end up in this sort of vicious cycle. Well, Kevin, um, I, I, I really look forward to uh, to the book, uh, and um, it will be a, a great read. And, and the, I'm saying this as somebody who uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to confess does not read many history books. <laughs> um, so, uh, but um, I, I know uh, your time is is precious, and uh, g given things that are going on in the country, you've got other uh, other interviews even on your uh, schedule for this very day. So. Um, uh, Kevin Levin, thank you so much for uh, for talking with me today on the Why We Argue podcast. My pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into the podcast. Remember that the podcast is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. Now, you can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at, at Public Humility, one word. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye now.